Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 285. We are in the beginning of the month of Kislev, and this week will be Tes Kislev, coming Shabbos, which is both the birthday and the yard site of the Mitla Rebbe. It's also Shabbos Pashas Vayetze. So, as is our custom, following the guidelines of the Rebbe and the Rabbeim to live with the times, to open up with discussing these significant dates and period in time, and of course, all in the spirit of Chassidus applied, applying it to our lives, to our personal lives. So we'll start. Let's start with Tes Kislev, being that it's the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, the son of the Alter Rebbe, as as the Rabbeim have said that the Rabbeim are all structured around the Sviris, with uh, the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid being Keser, Atik and Arich, the Alter Rebbe Chochme, the Mitla Rebbe Bina, Samar Tzadik Das. And uh, that we heard the Rebbe Marash said that. And then the later Rabbeim said that the Rebbe Marash is Netzach, the Rebbe Rashab Hei, the Friedrich Rebbe Yusein, the Rebbe would be Malchus, Derashvi. Why it skips Chesed, Gur Teferes, I never saw a direct source. But it could be, the reason is because, like in the Ushpizen as well, the Netzach Heid Yusayr, it says in places of Chesidus, is the implementation of the practical application of the three Midas of Chesed, Gvurah, Teferis. So Netzach Heid Yusayr is more connected to bring it into Pale. So perhaps that's why it's not counted. Instead, it's Netzach Heid Yusayr. If anyone has any sources about that, please share it, and I will share it with the public. So Mitla Rebbe is Bina. Bina, of course, is identified, as anyone who's learned a little chassidus knows, harchava, expansion. So chachm is the nekudah, is a point, is the conception. Just a mere concentrated point, bina is the expansion and the comprehension of that and development of that spark. So bina, the mitla rebbe, we see exactly that, that he took the nekudahs, Relatively, they were compared to before the Alter Rebbe, especially before Petersburg, say before Yutas Kislev, they were really short. But even relatively afterwards, the Mitla Rebbe, one page of the Mitla, of the Alter Rebbe could be ten pages by the Mitla Rebbe. Both in the Hanochas that he wrote, that he heard from the Alter Rebbe, are more expanded, still based, of course, on the Alter Rebbe. And uh, when you compare it to other Hanochas, to other people who wrote down what the Alter Rebbe said, and definitely the Mitla Rebbe himself, his own Maimarim, are literally, as I said, expansive. So Chesedis explains the difference between a Mayan and a Nor. A Mayan is a spring. The springs of water that are usually under the ground. They are what we call Mayim Chaim. They're live water. So on one hand, they're very intense, but they come out very, in very concentrated form. Drop, drop. Tipin, tipin, as, as is brought in Halacha and Chesedis. Drop, drop. Recheves Hanor, on the other hand, a river, which is not a source a river is already has a source of water that's running into the river, that's feeding the river, but the river expands that, those drops into becoming a very wide and a more expansive flow. So that's what Bina does to Chochmah. It takes the, 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 the concentrated dot point and expands it in a way that we can fully understand it. In simple English, there's the concept of someone conceiving of an idea, and there are people who know how to develop the idea to the point that you can execute it, that you can bring it into implementation execution. 
Because as long as it remains just a spark, it's very difficult. It has to be fleshed out. So you really need both. And that's why the expression is used, today rein delay mispashen. Chochm and Bina are like two friends that cannot be separated. They both need each other. Chochm, of course, is the spark which feeds Bina. And Bina is the development that takes the Nukud to that spark and that concentrated point and develops it in a way that we can use it, we can understand it, we can integrate it and internalize it. That's what you see in the Mitla Rebbe's Chassidus. And in addition to that, you see the Mitla Rebbe was actually a publisher. Even though the Alter Rebbe published Tanya, but besides that, and Shulchan Aruch, and Chastan but besides that, the rest of the Mamorim were not published in the time of the Alter Rebbe. The, Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, on the other hand, actually composed books. Like I mentioned, I mentioned most, many of them I'll mention. Of course, we know Teres Chaim. We know the Sidrim Dach. We gathered all the Alter Rebbe's Mamorim on Sidr. Biyuri Hazer did the same thing. The Alter Rebbe's Mamorim on Zeir in an organized way. We have Svarim like Shari Eira, which is on Hanukkah. Shari Tshuva, Shari Muna, Shari Muna which is on Pesach. We have Sharei uh, Share Yichud, which is on Eshedr Shtalshlus. Sharei Spilus. Kuntus Spilus, I should say. And, uh, and many others. There's Derechayim, that's an Aveda, Tshuva, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. There's Bat Kedish, which is, which is a, a letter that he wrote to the Tsar at the time. There's Ateres Reish, which is about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. So books, these books were all published by the Mitla Rebbe with a title, with an introduction. So you can say publishing is a form of Bina. And interesting, many of them are called Shar. What's Shar? A gate. By, by Chochmah you say Lamed Beis Nesiv is Chochmah. The 32 paths of Chochmah. And Nesiv is more of a narrow path. When you say by Bina, what do you say? Chamishim Sha'are Bina. 50 gates of understanding. Because a gate is a much wider corridor. A gate into something. So it's all consistent with the, the Rebbe's contribution. And we see, as the Rebbe says in a number of sikhs, that in the Mitla Rebbe's times, the spreading and the dissemination of chassidus expanded far, far more than it was before that. Obviously, it's all relative in levels, because just like Bina is an expansion of Chochmah, so too chassidus was expanded by the Mitla Rebbe, not just in kamus, not just in quantity, but also in quality, in reaching like a river reaches, like a gate reaches, far, far more audiences, both quantitatively and qualitatively. This also connects it to Vayetze. In the Sikh and Tov Shemem Zayin, connected to the Mitla Rebbe, the Rebbe says, Vayetze, what's Vayetze? Vayetze Yaakim Be'er Sheva. Be'er Sheva is the Sheva seven midas of Atzilus. And we're Vayel Charono. Vayetze, the Yitziah, from one higher level to a lower level, begins with the Yitziah from Chochmah to Bina. Very fascinating footnotes in that sikhah by Yetzei Tov Shemem Zayin, where he connects the two. So yes, Midas Techaron is more from Atzilus to Biyah, which is from the divine unified world of vision of Atzilus into Biri Yitzir which is already the beginnings of creation and the conclusion of creation. Whereas where in Atzilus, everything begins in a subtle level and higher levels. Where does that journey begin? It begins with Vayetzei Yaikiv, Yud Ekev, Yud of Chochmah, into Bina. And from Bina then it goes into Midas, and from Midas it goes further down. So Chochmah to Bina is also a form of Vayetze. Now why do you need a Vayetze? Why not just stay so-called in your, in, your, in your own entity, in your own domain? Because the going out is actually expands and enriches 
and deepens the experience. So Bina enriches and deepens the experience of Chochmah. At the same time, it needs to always be connected to Chochmah. So the lesson is very clear to all of us, which is in learning, first of all, very basically, when you learn something, to learn it not just uh, points and highlights and uh, bullet points and just uh, the Rashi Prakim, which is a short summary, but actually to learn it in Recheves Hanar with expansion of Bina. Obviously, everybody in their, in the right time, with the time allowed to them, but there's a certain gishmak, a certain pleasure and joy that you have when you don't just learn it quickly, but you actually expand on it and you read it in all detail and so on. Remember, as a boch in Yeshiva in 770, Friday night, which was the winter nights in New York, our, short, our Shabbos begins early, so you have many hours until you can make Kiddush. In general, as for bochrim, it was all night, and I remember one of the Mashbim telling us the most gishmak thing to do is take a mimer from the Mitla Rebbe, Teres Chaim, or before that, Teldus, and learn it because you have the time and it's like an expansive mimer and you just immerse yourself in a sea, in a river, I should say, in a river of, of chassidus. As is known with the Demitla Rebbe in general, that from him flowed chassidus, that Samach Tzedek, his son-in-law and nephew, said about the Demitla Rebbe that if you cut him, it wouldn't be blood that would come out of his veins, it would be chassidus. A few other stories, just since talking about Tes Kislev, which is both the birthday and the yard site of the Mitla Rebbe. The only Rebbe with the birthday and the yard site come out the same day, like Moshe Rabbeinu, which the Gemara talks about, Shlemus, a complete, the Mamalim meaning by Tzadikim, uh, even though not by many, most, but the, there are those where you have complete year, meaning the conclusion of their life in this world, concludes the same day when it began. Mitla Rebbe is one of them. So, just to, to a few more things about Mitla Rebbe, when he would write Chassidus, he wrote so quickly. And he was so immersed in it that, they, that when he came to the bottom line of the pages of the Begins, he's writing with quill and ink, someone had to move the next page because he would write onto the, onto the desk. And I actually saw this with my own eyes, working in the Rebbe's library years ago when I worked in Sefer Lekutim of Tzamech Tzedek. We were instructed by the Rebbe to compare the Tzamech Tzedek's Mamorim that were then, they were then arriving in the library from Warsaw, original manuscripts. So we were comparing... So in comparing, I looked at some of the Mitla Rebbe's writing, and you could actually see. You could see the bottom of the pages are like half lines. And they say it was still wet. The top of the page was still wet when he got to the bottom. That was his flow, the, the Nevi'as HaMechin, the flow of intelligence, the flow of intellect in his writing. The Rebbe once said, uh, is one of the only times the Rebbe actually used his hands that we could see. And it's a, it's a video of it. The Rebbe said that each Rebbe had his Aveda, the Alta Rebbe, so he said, Alter Rebbe, his espilus was very revealed. You could see it in a very palpable way. The Alter Rebbe would sometimes say, due to his great, great espilus, his excitement, he would sometimes roll on the floor to the point that Apinches Rezis, one of the writers, the Manichim, Chazim Manichim, would go down on the floor to hear the Alter Rebbe. And we have actually my modern where you see dot, 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 because he didn't hear every word. The Mitlareb, on the other hand, you did not see that his pilus. When he davened, he stood in one place. He didn't see movement. The Rebbe is similar. However, the Rebbe said, those that noticed closely, the Rebbe said that the, the different type of um, streimels that were worn, there was a flat streimel, a yarmulke that was flat on top of the streimel, and there was a spitzike, meaning with a point. Sometimes you see the tzemachzadik images, you could see a point, like the, the, the cup with the yarmulke on top of the shtaimel is pointed upwards. So the Rebbe said the Mitla Rebbe had a pointed one. 
And the Rebbe made like this with his hands and pointed one. And if you look closely, when he davened, you could see, and the Rebbe made like this, at the top, you see para, which meant vapor, steam, out of his great passion, but it was more internal, it would come out to the point you saw steam come out, the Rebbe made like this, spill over from the point of the shtraimel that he was wearing. So, spilus more primis doesn't mean less passion, it just means a different form. So just a few uh, nice anecdotes that uh, relate, of course, to this concept. I've always wondered why Chochmah would be Spilus Goli more revealed. Chochmah would seem to be more concentrated and more concealed. And Bina should be more Spilus, more expanded. So it's a question I've always had. I don't have an answer to it. If anybody would like to weigh in on that, I'd love to hear what you have to say. But regardless, we know this from the Rabbeim, these facts and many, many more about them. So Tes Kisla being the birthday in Yardzeit, we honor and we celebrate. All the Rabbeim are actually one, one Moir. But each one has their one uh, luminary. But, but the, as the Rebbe said, actually on the Shabbos, Pashas, Vayetzei, Tes, uh, or Yud Kislev, Tov Shin Yud, the first year. That, that's why it doesn't say Shalshel Hamoir on the Sharblat, on the cover page of the Svarim of the Rabbeim. It's Shalshel Ha'ir. The Rebbe said, I was asked why. Shalshel is the Rabbeim are Moir. They're a luminary. They're a source of light. Not just a light. Not just air. Not just a reflection of the source. Rebbe said, because in Namoir, in Ishtok, in Shalshelis. In Namoir, there's no hierarchy. There's no chain. Because all the Rabbeim, Be'etzim, are one Moir. But the Eir, each one gives off. Eir HaChochme, Eir HaBina, Eir HaDas, and so on. So really, there's all one. But each one has their unique style and approach that we can learn from. And the first lesson, as I said, is to learn Chassidus with Bina. And to learn Chassidus B'Shufi, the Mitle Rebbe said he wished upon himself, that Chassidim we we'll stand on a corner and be talking about Das Elyon and Das Tachten, or Yehudi Lo, Yehudi Tato, the different versions. So, fulfill the birthday, Yartzah of the Mitla Rebbe, what better way is to have a Vayetze, going out of our own comfort zones, going out of our own inner space, and going into spreading and speaking Chassidus with friends, with others, making it a common discussion, not just a unique novelty, but something that is so common that is something that's on the, that we are becomes regular language and part of our daily routines. Not in, a, not in a negative way, in a positive way, that it's so much part of us, like the blood of the Mitle Rebbe, that was Chassidus, that this shoe should be so natural to us to talk Chassidus. When you meet someone, share a thought of Chassidus, a Chassidus Shavart, a Chassidus story, a Chassidus Shanigan. But something of Chassidus, living with Chassidus in that way, that's the Bina of Chassidus of the Mitle Rebbe, the Vayetze. There are obviously many other lessons which... I will cross-reference to episodes 44, 90, 140, 189, 235. These are previous episodes, for those that are not familiar, of this uh, long-standing, it's already six years, over six years, that we're doing My Life Citizen Applied. We're in episode 285. And we have actually created a special, because of the demand and the popularity, we created a special website called chassidusapplied.com, where you can find this, this episode. Every live episode is broadcast there. Uh, as well as in many other platforms, so many that are out there, um, social media. Now we have a WhatsApp group you can subscribe to and get, receive the actual stream of the video, or the audio actually, in WhatsApp, as well as the archives of all the previous ones. So I cross-reference because the fact is we talk about these topics more than once. Each time I try to choose another angle, but still like to complement it by cross-referencing to previous episodes. And you can also find a full array of resources there of applying chassidus, including a running summary and explanation on Samach Vov and Ayin Beis, 
and more and more to come, of course. And, of course, your contribution, the essays, the thousands of essays that have been submitted over the last five years, applying chassidus to a contemporary issue. And we hope to expand these resources because that is essentially the lifeblood and the essence of our mission. As Mashiach told the Balshamtev, you do that when you'll spread the wellsprings, you'll disseminate, distribute them to the widest outskirts of the world, then I will come, Mashiach will come. So this is our standing mission. So um, therefore, hopefully more and more resources, if you have ideas, thoughts, you'd like to contribute in any way, whether with ideas or with practical helping and volunteering, or obviously financial support, please don't hesitate. Not only don't hesitate, I encourage you to do so, because this is our core mission, and we're working on different projects, adapting these programs and trying to turn it into, we're going to turn it into a series of an encyclopedia book that will be organized by topic. Take all the 285 episodes and all the episodes and organize it. And we have other projects as well, working with schools and curriculum, as well as the contest that we do every year. And we're, try- we're expanding that to is- in Hebrew and in Russian, which we began last year. And the sky's the limit, frankly, because we still have plenty of work to do to infiltrate the mainstream with chassidus and show how it's a blueprint for life that can address every personal, psychological, emotional, spiritual, religious issue in our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with God, with the Torah. So that is a small, uh, stepping back, a little overview of what we do. And with that, I want to go to a few questions that came in. Some are connected to this week's Pasha, so it's perfect. So one, what is the connection between the rods Jacob took to breed the flocks and tefillin? Here's how one of the right, one of the questioners puts it: Yaakov Avinu painting lines on cattle. What is the source that says when Yaakov Avinu painted lines on cattle, he was also accomplishing drawing down the same spiritual energy that can be done by putting on tefillin? If someone finds themselves in a place and doesn't have tefillin, can he paint lines on cattle instead? <laughs> I'm always uh, taken by the questions, the creative. Original, original thinking here. So first of all, let me just correct. I read the question as it was written. Yaakov didn't paint lines on cattle. The Pesach says in this week's chapter, when Yaakov begins building his family and he's working for Lovon, so he tended to his flocks, to his, to his sheep, to his livestock, to his goats, etc. <clears throat> when Yaakov is asked by Yavon, how do you want me to pay you? He says, pay me with the sheep. I will, and it's a whole elaborate discussion. Now Yaakov says, I will breed the sheep, and certain sheep, the speckled ones and the brown ones, will be go to me, and the rest will go to you. And they come to that agreement. And it's elaborate, relatively, it's an elaborate story of Yaakov tending to the sheep. And then comes this like strange episode, narrative, that Yaakov goes and he says, he takes rods, moist rods, and he says of what? Of, of uh, almond and, and, uh, and ma- different uh, forms of, the, of uh, rods. And he strips them. That you see the white of the rods. And he placed them in the, in the gutters of the troughs where the sheep and the livestock drink from. And that caused them when they bred that they would shape that based on what they saw. That's how it's usually explained. That it affected what type of sheep, what type of them, whether it be spotted or speckled, or striped, etc. Akudim nekudim vrudim is the expression, or sometimes tilayim. Three different types of sheep. Three different types of, of uh, flocks. And um, 
So when you read it ostensibly, like why, why is it relevant to us to know? Comes the Zayar. So, so he didn't paint lines. He caused that to cause the cattle to actually breed differently and look differently. So there comes the Zayar. This is Zayar, volume one. 162a, also 161, but especially Sisre Teda, which refers to Tefillin, and reads and explains at length the, the meaning, the spiritual meaning behind all these activities that Yaakov did. Among the things that he says there is, is um, the Tefillin, that this is a form of being Mamshak Tefillin. Obviously, it's not physical Tefillin, but the rods he compares to Tefillin Shabarosh. Some say it's like the parchment. The, the gutters in which he put the rods are like the batim, the boxes up in which, in which the parchment is laid, then it's connected to the ritzuas, the, the straps. So the Zaya connects it to film. That's the source. It's explained in a number of places. In Teda 80, he mentions it in this week's chapter 23c. But in Eda Teda A, pages 757 and on, explains it more at length. And explains actually this difference. That what's the difference between tefillin by the way Yaakov did it and the way the Ovis in general perform mitzvahs than the way it's done after Matan Teda. So he explains that the way they, the, the Ovis did it and Yaakov put on the tefillin of the Maklis is not in the physical object. It didn't change anything. He was Mamshik. He had the power because he was a Merkov. He was connected to God. He had the power. The Gavra had the power to draw down the energies that are similar to tefillin. And the Maklis are like a symbolic way of doing so. Martin Teda achieved that it actually infused the physical world, and in this case, parchment, and the boxes, and the straps, as it is with every other physical thing, that the physical objects actually became colors. So in addition to drawing down the energy spiritually, it actually permeated and was, became manifest in the physical reality of tefillin. And that's why the Maklists do not have any Gedusha in it, and tefillin does have holiness in it. So you can read it in Parsha A. So no, if a person does not have tefillin, he cannot take rods and do what Yaakov did. There's absolutely no connection to it. If perhaps, if someone on the level of Yaakov, even then I would say, after Matan Teda, Yaakov would be putting on physical tefillin. Like the Rabbeim did, like the Moshe Rabbeim did, like everyone does. If you can draw it down in other ways, this, that's a discussion in general, whether you could draw down the spiritual energies without doing the mitzvah physically the way the Teda says it. One could argue, no, once the Matan Teda was Keveya, designated that this is the way to draw down, let's say, the Dalud Mechin, the four levels of intellect, which is Chachma Bina Das, and Das splits into Chest and Gvura, into two parts, then you can't do it any other way. Shabbos is through Shabbos. Before Matan Teda, because the physical world was yet, not yet a keli, a container for these spiritual energies, there are other ways that the others did it, spiritually, as we say. Except Bris, and the few exceptions, where they actually did it in a physical way, in the physical flesh. I will also add, there's a mimer, Vayikach Makal, Vayikach Loi Makal, which is the Pesach in Pasha Vietzi. There's a mimer in Tofresh Shayin Ches from the Rebbe Rashab, and in Tofresh Tzadik Tes from the Friedrich Rebbe, which is based on the Tofresh Shayin Ches. It's interesting, the Tofresh Tzadik Tes one concludes, a big part of the mimer, which continues in Ayin Ches, is not there in Tzadik Tes. I was wondering whether it was deliberate or maybe something missing. I'll just say it's deliberate because it does conclude the Maimur, but in Ayaches it's longer. There he does not bring tefillin. He generally brings from the, he brings from the Zayar. In Tzadik Tessi says that the Zayar's Mairech elaborates on this story with the sheep. 
and um, with, the, with the rods and the gutters and so on. And he says there that the Nekud of the Zayat is that he took, that when he took the rods, there's a few elements in the rods. He took moist rods, with, moist, which is chesed. Then he took rods with different colors, which is gvura. And then the third dimension was teferis, Yaakov is teferis, drawing down from the highest levels to the lowest levels of transforming this world. So he doesn't mention tefillin there, but he does mention and discuss that. So it's an interesting mimer to learn. It's a unique mimer. And um, I did not have the chance to see if the Rebbe Marash has a mimer on this too. And Samach Tzedek does have mimer in Eratera and Pasha Vayetze. That is, you can say, is the basis of some of those points. But those memorim elaborate on it. One more thing I would add, something I may have discussed in other episodes, uh, maybe not, that there's also elaborate discussion, Kabbalah and the Sikh, and memorim and Sikhs, on uh, the etzim inyan of the, 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 the mare, the core tending to the flocks and its connection to Yaakov. The beautiful Sikh in Chelik Tezvov about saying why, why sheep, and in Chelik Lamed Hay, where he talks about a kudim, a kudim, vrudim. The Eitz Chaim says, that says, all this came to you from love and explains that love and Levin Elyon, which is colorless, is the core color, is the levels, the highest levels of Keser, they, the highest levels of Elikus, of Einsof, draw down a kudim, a kudim, vrudim, which of course are the three general worlds of Bria de Klolis, or Yitzira de Klolis, and Yitzira de Klolis, and Asiyah de Klolis the macrocosmic worlds that cover all of us, say, the Ishtalshals. But that's a somewhat of an aside. I'm just completing the picture here that a lot of this is discussed in Eitz Chaim. This is a Shara Kudim in the beginning, and Chassidus cites it, and that's Sikha Echelik Lamed Hay explains it, that, um, that this is all connected to the spiritual Aveda of what Yaakov was doing. So the sheep and the flocks and the, the rods and the, and the gutters all end up being really code language for higher spiritual things that all of us are capable of doing, each in our own way, of course, because we have the power that we get from Yaakov to achieve exactly the same things. So with that, um, let us move now to the next question, also on this week's Shat Parsha. Why didn't Yaakov, why didn't Jacob free Bilah and Zilpah? Why didn't Yaakov free Bilah? Why does the Torah continue to refer to them as servants throughout Weren't they holy people who mothered four of the Shvatim, the tribes? Shouldn't they have received more respect? A similar question you can say about Avram. If Avram was such a kind person, why did he have slaves? It seems that he wasn't scared to take a position against the world if he felt it was the right thing. How could he have possibly believed that slavery was okay, especially if his having slaves was later used as a defense to enslave people? The same could be asked about the terrorist endorsement of slavery. Okay, in Parsha Mishpatim and other places. But, uh, so first of all, let me refer you to episode 246. Two key points have to be made. Slavery as we understand it today, the abhorrent for fashion of subjugating like the Egyptians did to the Jews, and even the slavery of the black people in this country in the United States, or other forms of slavery, is completely not related to the slavery that you find in Chumash. The expression, first of all, shivcha is a maidservant. If you have a cleaning lady today, or you have someone helping you in the kitchen. So yes, today many people are not livings, but if they live in and you pay them a salary, you take care of their needs instead of a salary. So that's the exchange. That's, that's labor and work. And there's responsibilities 
that the person who's paying this servant has in how this person has to be, has to be respected and cared for and so on. Giving them food before you give yourself food. And so, so I think there's a major stereotype and a, uh, and a myth of comparing slavery in the Torah to that. The Torah believes every human being is created in the divine image. That's everybody. So even though there was a time, in, there's the second point, there was a time in history that there were people who did that. It was more common. Today it's less common. So, but today you still find people who are doormen, chauffeurs, people who work in homes and help. And it's not necessarily considered to be an inferior position. Okay. Abuse is never acceptable. Not today, not then. So I think it's important to establish that when Yaakov married Leah, so Leah had with her a maidservant, an assistant, if you wish, an executive assistant. If you called it that, you'd have probably a different attitude. Her name was Bila. And then Rachel came with Zilpah. So the fact of the matter is, and not only that, they became wives of Yaakov. So you see even more than that. And that makes it even more like an Ome Evriya. There's no Evriya before Matan Teda, but it's even more responsible. They became the mothers, as you point out, of the tribes. Where do you find anywhere? If you found a Pasuk where it says that Yaakov mistreated them, then we could talk about it. And that would have been inappropriate, just like in mistreating any human being. So the fact that their role was a servant, or what you call a shivcha or a eved, is very different than what most of us think of today as a slave. I wouldn't even use that word. Now, even that, we know in Pasha Mishpatim is a whole issue of a person sells themselves into slavery or sells themselves into servitude because they, are made, they either did a crime or they can't afford. And there's rules. Even that God doesn't want because you should be a servant to God and not a servant to servants. But nevertheless, it's not as draconian and not even at all draconian. The Torah has very clear guidelines. Now, whether they freed them it's not a question. They were not subjugated. They were not punished. They were not held on the, in bars. They, were, they could move about. They moved about with Yaakov. They moved about with Avram. They were part of the entourage. So I'm not sure whether the word free is the right word. And uh, even though, yes, there are le- levels of ownership because if a person committed themselves, let's say, to someone who says, I'll be with you seven years, I'll be with you whatever amount of years, there's a commitment. But it's all illegal and it's all moral and ethical and there are guidelines of the, of the obligations they have to each other. So that's the short answer to this question. Okay, fine. Next, since last week was the Kinnus HaShluchim, and we talked about it in last week's episode 284, so there's some follow-up that came from that, and I will just read the follow-up and address the issues. A few comments Inspired by the kinnus, how can a businessman be more involved in shlichus? The kinnus hashluchim is a very inspiring event. The kinnus hashluchim, just for the record, is the international annual conference of emissaries and ambassadors of the Rebbe from all over the world that come together here in New York and Crown Heights and celebrate and have workshops and fabring together uh, through the days, usually from Wednesday, Thursday through Sunday or Monday. So he's saying this is a very inspiring event. It almost makes me feel like I should participate. Do you have any practical suggestions about how a working profession or business person can be more involved in shlichus even if they don't do it full time? Another person wrote a very similar question. Maybe it's the same person, but I'll just read it. How can ordinary people do shlichus? The kindness inspired many of us to really think about what we are doing to make the world a better place. Can you provide a few practical suggestions about how ordinary people can do shlichus even if it's not full time? 
let's even say it's the same person that wrote it, find two different uh, versions of the same question. Absolutely. The answer to that comes straight from the Rebbe. The Rebbe made it very clear. Every neshama, every soul that comes to earth is a shliach of God's. It doesn't come here by accident. It's an ambassador, an emissary, sent on a mission to fulfill a unique mission that only you and, you and only you can accomplish. So whether you're in business or you're uh, what you call ordinary, there's no such thing as ordinary. Everybody has their shlichas. Then there are those that merited that 24-7 they became their whole job, their whole work is being on a mission, building a organization, a school, a yeshiva, spreading chassidus, wherever they may be. This is not a popularity contest. I'm not comparing. But everyone can learn lessons from this, that each of us is a shliach. The inspiration shall lead us that wherever you go back to your workplace, find ways to influence, to inspire, to empower, to educate, invite people to come to your home, co-workers. Even if you go to a doctor's office, even if you're going to a business meeting, your job is not just to do the business, but also a deeper reason, to bring light, to bring spiritual inspiration. A Jewish person to Judaism, and a non-Jewish person to the seven Noahide laws, the laws of civilization. We're all obligated to live up to what God expects and wants of us. And each of us is a shliach to do that. So all of us can do that. The truth is it's full-time. But it could take the form. A person is also doing work. They can, while they're working, they can't be doing that exactly. But it doesn't mean they can't be working it in. And everybody in their own particular way, using your talents and skills. You just have to feel and be compelled by that sense of urgency and sense of mission, a mission-centric life. I would refer you to also episodes 88, 143, and 208, where I discuss this more at length. Another question came up which I always hesitate reading these questions because they are somewhat distasteful in a way. But I have promised and I committed not to censor anything unless something that's so offensive that I just don't think is not appropriate, which hasn't happened very often just for the record. Um, but even then I'll couch it or somewhat uh, modify the, the question. But here I'll just read it because it's a reality and uh, I know some people are going to complain and say, why do you even have to bring this up? But I'm going to bring it up, and please wait till I answer. Don't just listen to the, the, the questions. Two kinusim. Thank you very much for all your classes. I really enjoy listening to them. I noticed that there is a kinus hashluchim banquet in 770 Amit Shabbos. At the same time as the regular kinus is going on. I looked into it to see what it's about and realized, because this is a letter from a past thing, that the Rabbonim of Crown Heights have all participated in this kinus as well as the Rebbe's secretary, Rebbe Simpson, all of Ashal. Can you please elaborate on the background of this kinus? Another person writes, Hello, Rabbi Jacobson, I'm not a chassid. I'm curious to know why there are two different shluchim conferences. Thank you, Rabbi. Well, I am not going to condone the two conferences. The Rebbe advocated one thing and one thing primarily, Agdus. Avas Hashem and Agdus Hashem. Avas Yisrael and Agdus Yisrael. Which especially applies to the shluchim, who are the living examples, shluchim, shluchim, kamesei, of what that ardus is. So to me, the mere fact that there's two separate things that are that we're competing, but one is not completely aligned with the other, is not necessarily healthy and aligned with what the Rebbe would want. People have different opinions, absolutely. Shluchim can have different opinions. I mean, you have thousands of shluchim come here, you think everyone is of the same thought, but they all bring together. So to me, I would do everything possible to bring them together, and find a way there should be one. 
You ask why there's two? Because unfortunately some people feel that they take their differences and they just can't seem to combine, con- join and reconcile themselves with others. Not pointing fingers, I'm not going to say who, what, but that's what I want to say. I'm not condoning it. I think it's part of not a proper thing. It should be all united. And that's that on that topic. Okay. Next question, completely different, unrelated. Well, you know, everything is always related. Is there a point in learning something I don't understand? I've been told so, to so many times about the proper learning process of Chochme Bina Das, so that one's learning is actually internalized and has the desired effects. And I try to implement, implement it when possible. Many times I'll come across ideas of chassidus that seem totally beyond me. My question is, is it even within a person's reach to understand such lofty, godly concepts? Is there a point in learning something I don't understand? Does learning it and not really understanding it contradict with the whole idea of Chabad way of learning? How should I approach this when I come across very difficult topics in my marim or the like? Thank you in advance. Very good question. I once heard that the Rebbe, someone before the Nasius, before the Rebbe's leadership, before Tavshin Yud, that is, someone um, brought an individual to the Rebbe, and he asked the Rebbe, what should he begin learning in Chassidus? So the Rebbe said, Tanya. While back, a while later, he came back to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, how's it going? So he says he's learning it, but he doesn't understand anything. So this is how I heard the Rebbe answer. He says, smiled, and he says, the first step is good, because the mere fact that you don't understand is already a progress. And the second thing the Rebbe said, in not understanding, we're all equal. Because since the Torah is Ein Sof, so compared to the infinite, different finite levels are all equally distant. The difference is in what we know. Some know a little more, some know a little less. So let's start with that. The Torah is Ein Sof. So a person can argue, what's the point? I'm never going to reach the pinnacle anyway. So what's the point of learning? A, a second question. There are people, greater sages than me, in my time, before my time, back to Tanoim Amarim. I'm never going to reach their level. They already worked hard and exerted themselves to understand something. So what is the, what's the point? The answer is, this really lies the heart of the whole Teda Bechlal and our relationship with God. Let's broaden the question. How could we even have a relationship with God? God is a creator, beyond infinite, beyond defined, immortal, eternal, Every possible way antithetical to the human being who's mortal, temporary, we are fallible, we're vulnerable, we're needy, everything possible, we're different. It's not just gvul and bligvul, finite and infinite. It's completely two different entities. And yet, God created the world and created us in the divine image, human being, and gave us a teda mitzvah and says, my teda mitzvah, and when you do it, when you do the teda, you're learning my teda you're connecting to my mind. You're connecting through my mitzvahs. I've sanctified you through these mitzvahs. So clearly we immortals can suddenly have a connection to something that's beyond. That itself is the power that God gave us. So someone will say, well, I can never connect anyway. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, he said, I want to see God's face. Show me your honor, your glory. And no man can live and see my face. So I'm, I'm going to see the God's face, or even back? The answer is yes. Everybody in their own way, created in the divine image, has a piece of God in them. A godliness, I should say. And as a result, they have an ability to connect. When we say in Shema, So 
So with all your heart you have to. Your heart may not be the same as someone else's heart. Another, a person who's worked their entire lives, their, their passionate, heartfelt connection to God may be deeper than yours. But this isn't a popularity contest, as I mentioned earlier. This isn't a race. With your nefesh. And then that's the interesting one. Meidecha means with all of your might. With all of you. All. Now your ma'idcha, meaning beyond your regular capabilities, is different than someone else. Someone else, you going beyond yourself, for another person is not really going beyond. They have to go beyond themselves. And next says, ma'idcha, you go beyond yourself out of your comfort zone, and then you receive a ma'id amiti, the true ma'id, that infinite ma'id, because you did an act that is a keli for infinity by going beyond yourself. Explains in Tanya chapter 15. Going out of your comfort zone, out of your routine. So the point of the matter is that the same God that's completely beyond also manifested himself in things that we can relate to. And when we relate to it, we're actually getting the part of godliness, even the part that's beyond us. Even the part that we don't understand. When you get the core of something, even if you get a piece of it, you get all of it. You may not understand it, it may not be completely in your containers, but whatever you do, you have within it the whole essence. The whole essence. Now a lot more can be said about this, this is the whole Bir Moksidis. But coming back to the question here, that when you learn one posse container, and that's on your level, and you understand it, even if you don't understand all its depth, and even if there's more to understand, and maybe you'll never understand it all, in that is concentrated the entire right there. Everyone who sits in reads and studies so God comes, everyone doesn't say only those that learn it in the deepest way, everyone commensurate meaning they're like a face reflected in water so too the heart is reflected in another heart. So you make your effort and God responds. So to start measuring, this is not, a, as I said, a contest where you measure how far it was there to go. You make your effort and habol say. You do a little, even ma'at, person sanctifies even a bit, they give him a lot more from above. So it's, as we'll soon talk about, quid pro quo, there's a midah connected midah, and it's the echus, is the quality of your effort that matters more than the kamus of how much you do. Because a person who doesn't make an effort because it's easy for them, because they know it already, in a way does not get the same response as someone who does less, but they did it with their effort. Your effort. And it's a vital component because it's not about saying, since I won't get there anyway at the end, what's the point to even begin? That's not correct. Because by getting whatever you're able to get, then you receive something from above, and also, in that what you're doing, you, re- you receive the whole picture. And the only way to reach the levels, as Chassidus says, the highest levels of connecting to the divine, is by first connecting the things you're able to connect. And then more comes in, like we count the 49 days of the Omer. And then the 50th day we don't count, that emerges after you count 49. So many other examples, Chassidus, Asusa Lotata brings Asusa Dela'ela, an awakening from below, initiates and generates awakening from above. Then comes another awakening from above that comes, follows that. And then comes even a higher one that you can't directly access, but it will emerge once you do the work. So interestingly, you can do everything you work, you get commensurate to that, you receive a response, but then you receive even something greater because you created the environment, you created a platform.
Once the platform is there, much more can happen. Think of the Mishkan. For us in the Mikdash, we shechanti b'seicham. Sashleim ha'melech. Shemayim v'shemeyer shemayim lo'yichal kalucha. The heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. Afke abayas azeh, this small structure, this building can contain you? And God says, yes, read it now. Not a question, read it as an answer. That even though heavens and heaven, and heaven of heavens cannot contain me, this small house can contain me because I am in, in, in placing myself. I'm inserting myself into this microcosm called the Mishkan. And each one of us is a microcosm of the Mishkan. In, so in the Beis Amigdash, in the Mishkan, which was a limited, defined place, you have the divine presence. And that's the story of our lives. Make Adira B'tachtenim in your corner of the world. It's your small corner. It's not, there's 7.7 7 other billion people. And there are, uh, everyone has different work. But in your corner, you do what you have to do. The divine finds its place there. You create a home for it. And you have all of the divine. Now obviously, the more you do, the more revealed it is. But the core essence of it is there with you regardless. And finally, to conclude, I remember the Rebbe telling the story, Erev Pesach, we go to those that are firstborn here, Asiyum, in order to be able to eat, because it's not because the Jews were saved. So a person, a, uh, essentially a, 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 a peasant, comes with his little baby son to hear Asiyum, because he was a Bechar and his son was a Bechar. So one of the people there was more of scholarly, says to him, what are you bringing him? Does he understand in Russian? And he says, and you do understand. In other words, you start talking about Taylor, even the biggest people understand, relative to what you could understand, is all, all of us are equal. That's why Simchas Taylor, we all dance together, adults and children. The Taylor is wrapped up because the essence of Taylor, everybody equalized. But I'm speaking, even in the learning, you also get something, and everyone according and commensurate to what they have done. Okay. Good. Next question. I want to also refer you to episodes 202, 215, and 246 somewhat that talk a bit more about this topic. Okay. Next question is, oh, I want to just say, so is it within reach to understand lofty godly concepts? The answer is absolutely, because God allowed us to, re- to do it. First of all, we have a soul. That itself is godly. So we already have inherent within us the ability and the sensitivity to um, divine concepts. And secondly, we were given the power to achieve it. And that's why we're capable to do so. Everyone, according to their level, as I explained. And the more you refine yourself, just like a child five years old will say, hey, I don't understand. At five years old, you understand what you understand. At 10 more, and you build upon it. Knowledge is accumulative. By the time you're age 40, age 30, whatever the age is, you can come to a point of understanding and reaching even what your teacher 40 years, whether 40 years being 40 years old or 40 years from when you heard the idea from your teacher, that means your kalim have become so refined, your mind, that now you can contain a lot more. So it's always a process of growth. Okay. With that, let me move to the next question about three versus one prokim of Rambam. Is it better to daven, quote-unquote, three prokim of Rambam? This is according to the, the Rebbe established in 1984, the learning of Rambam, three chapters a day, or, or learn in one chapter well. The second option was to learn one, chap, one chapter, which would take three years till you finish the Rambam, or three chapters, which takes one year to finish, or a third option was Sefer HaMitzvahs, which corresponds to the Allahus and Rambam. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, is it better to do one paragraph Rambam per day and learn it well, or do three program a day, but just quickly read it through it and not really learn it? Thank you for your wonderful and insightful program. 
I looked around and asked around. I've not found anything explicit, but I would say that because Rambam is Teresh Pet, it's not about Chumish, just reading it, even which means even if you don't know what it says. And the Rebbe gave explicitly options. Why would he give options? It wasn't just whether you have time to quickly read three, because if the Kavon is to learn, which I would lean to say, to learn, to understand, if you have the time and the ability to learn three chapters a day properly, choose that. If you don't, at least learn one properly. So I would say the answer is better to do one chapter. And this is my, my opinion. I don't have a black and white source. Better to do one pedic, one chapter a day. And more in Be'iu, more understandable than to do three chapters that you just read quickly. Because the, both are takonis of the Rebbe, so one is not fulfilling the Rebbe more than the other. And the fact that the Rebbe gave those options, what other reason is there for those options, if not that? Because if it was about just reading three chapters without understanding, or reading one chapter without understanding, you could argue that's the case, and maybe, maybe some people do it, but I would argue that it would be more to understand. So therefore, whatever you understand more. Which, of course, brings the question about chitas. So chumish and tilim, you can say, is teresh b'ksav, chumish and mikre. And therefore, reading alone is enough, even though it's always good to understand. But what about tanya? So again, I think I remember seeing something that Tanya, because it's Teresh uh, Peh, but it's the Teresh Shabbat of Chassidus. So some of the people just read it. Is that better than nothing? I assume it is. And we know we learn Tanya Balpeh. We don't always learn it with understanding it. But it makes more sense that you should, one should try to understand at least on a superficial level, at least uh, like, uh, like you learn uh, not Le'iyun, but at least in um, the Girsa to understand the ideas in Tanya. If anyone knows more information on these topics, please share for the benefit of the public. Okay. Let's continue. Next question. Everyone has purpose. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your weekly classes and for, meaningful, and for the Meaningful Life Center. I really enjoy them. I have a question that may seem like it's coming from a judgmental place, but I'm trying to get an answer that disproves my question. I just don't have the answer yet. Basically, if someone is not from and goes on a downward spiral, is there any purpose in being alive? To being alive. Because of the, it says, possible, because of the man I was created to serve my creator. Or I was created to serve my creator. It seems like if someone is not serving God, then why were they put on earth? So the question in short is, is a life, if not used properly, considered a waste, God forbid? I would really appreciate your answer. Thank you. In one sentence, this means, is, it, uh, is if someone is not serving God, is there any purpose to their being alive, since the entire purpose is to serve my Creator? So I think it's pretty obvious the answer, but let me spell it out, since the question seems to be bothering you, and probably others. Our, the intention of our creation, yes, was to serve God 24-7. But we were given free will, and therefore we can choose, God forbid, not to do so, or at least not always to do so, to serve God. No, that does not mean that you've, you, uh, you uh, forfeit your right to life. It means you can every moment do tshuva, every moment you can begin serving God, and you have choice. So if you, could, you can say that a person who's wasting their time and is not doing anything for a higher purpose than their own needs is not living up to the purpose of their existence, but none of us have the right to make a statement that that person does not deserve to be alive. God gives a person life and is always hopes that a person will be wise enough and will give them more chance and more chance. So I don't think we should, it should be so-called contingent on. 
But it's a good question because there's a very big difference if a person should be alive or whether they're fulfilling their purpose of their lives. Now we have the concept of a Russia, a wicked person, even in their lifetime, they're considered dead. They're, not, they're physically, biologically alive. Why are they considered dead? Because they're not living up to their purpose. There are people who go around that feel, they say, I'm like a zombie. I'm alive physically, biologically, but you're not living up to your purpose. So I think that, in many ways, worse, God forbid, than a life ending, which I don't even want to put on, say, express with my mouth, but since the question came up. Why? Because you're living a life, and you're not living, and you're, not, you're living but not living. You're alive, your heart is, is uh, beating, you're breathing, your mind is working, but you're not living up to your purpose. And that's very sad. But the good news is, there's always that spark in you that motivates, and hopefully... Knowing this, knowing that you have a mission. A lot of people tell me they never even heard they had a mission. You tell them they have a mission. They're like, they, then something starts stimulating inside of them, arousing them to want to live up to that calling. That would be the approach. So if you see someone that's doing that, living a purposeless life, or at least in some aspects, and we all are in some ways wasting time, is to say, not to say, hey, look, you don't deserve to be alive because you're not fulfilling your purpose, the other way around. God is so compassionate. He's giving you life. That means you have something so beautiful to contribute. Isn't it sad that you're not living up to your great potential? That would be the tone and the way I would express it. Okay, next question. What can I do about my parents speaking negatively about my spouse? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's recently come to light that my parents have been speaking a lot of Lush and Har about my wife. To her face, they have always been pleasant, but they have been saying extremely harsh and untrue things about her to friends and family members. My parents have some major emotional health issues, and as a result, we have put up necessary boundaries that limit our involvement in each other's lives. But at this point, my wife doesn't feel that there's any point in her continuing to have even a limited, fake relationship with them. And I'm starting to feel the same way. Is there a halakhically acceptable way to confront them about this? Thank you so much for your input. Okay, a complicated question, and I have addressed it, and I will give you the references after I respond what I'm going to say now. Because on one hand, we have the mitzvah of kibbedaveim, honoring our parents. It doesn't say loving your parents, it says honoring them, at least honor. Obviously, if they deserve it, also love. They gave us life, they, pay, they paid prices, they sacrificed themselves, and all the other reasons that for kibbedaveim. At the same time, parents are human beings, and they could do things that hurt us. And I'm assuming what you're saying is correct, because usually I like to hear both sides, if you wish. What I mean by that is get the whole picture, because it's always more complicated than just hearing a statement. Not in any way throwing any aspersions or questions on what you're saying. I'm just saying to get the fuller picture. But I'm assuming now this, that there are that the human beings, parents are human beings. And yet God still say honor them. Honor doesn't mean they have to be in your house. Honor doesn't mean that you have to have them there sitting and criticizing you and hurting you or your spouse or your children, etc., there's ways to honor from a distance. There's many ways to honor. So it's not a contradiction. But what about the part that they are now doing things that are damaging or hurtful? So if you've tried directly as their child to defend your spouse and say it's not nice and so on and didn't help, in a kind, compassionate way, one way to go, have you tried with other people who may know your parents? Maybe they could speak to them, at least to speak to them to just not, not always have to be negative and always be critical. That's one. If all that has not worked, 
then yes, you may need to avoid them to some extent and keep the relationship more superficial, especially if it's hurting somebody. But you know what? There are certain things we do even, you want to call it fake it, at least superficially. So I'm not saying you have to renew the hope that you're going to reconnect with them, but I would tell your spouse, I'm with you, come 100%. You're married, we're married together. I love you. You love me. My parents will not get in between us. I'm pained by it as much as you're pained. And let's just find ways. Hanukkah is coming or the holidays are coming. Find ways to just keep it bare minimum. And if anything starts being something very hurtful, we, we have our boundaries, as you put it. So in answering, is there a expected way to confront them about this? I would not confront in an aggressive way because besides being parents, I wouldn't confront even if it was strangers because it usually doesn't work. I would try subtly, and I'm sure you've tried. I would try with others. And then the day, maybe it's not an idea to confront, even in a kind way. It's you have to find the boundaries, and maybe you have to look at the, your parents, mother and father, your parents that are critical. They're usually not the same. See who, which of them is a little softer. Maybe you can talk to one of them, the one that's easier to talk to. You know, divide and conquer, if you want to put it that way. I don't like the word conquer, but you know, that, get the idea. And that's the approach I would take to it. To be very practical, and it's case by case, and try to have a wise, independent individual that's objective, that you trust, and must be it to help guide you along. Now, clearly, there's a history here, so there's a lot of bad blood, I'm sure. But nevertheless, I'm sure there are ways to make things better, and at least to keep it to a certain bay. I would also add one more thing, to keep it at bay, I should say. Regarding your spouse, your wife, I hope that you've shared with her that you're with her, but you have to also help her because she's hurt. And when you're hurt, you usually react in kind. Either you withdraw or you're more aggressive or you're angry. And to help her see it that, listen, let's, be, let's rise above it. Let's not allow it to poison and toxify us and our family. Okay. Okay, I see the follow-up we're not going to have time to do. So I'm going to do right now is one more question and then the Chassidus question. Quid pro quo. I've, I've heard you're speaking about impeachment, the impeachment proceedings or inquiries going on and lessons we can learn from it. I thought in that vein, perhaps we could also talk about quid pro quo. With all the talk out there in regards to quid pro quo, what would the Baal Shem say we learn from this? Is there a concept of this Chassidus? Another person writes, is quid pro quo an acceptable principle in Judaism? Well, quid pro quo is basic Latin for repaying something for a favor for a favor. You do this, I'll do this in return. So this is a common, uh, common and completely legitimate. We're not, we're not getting now into illegal things. We're talking about completely legitimate. It's called mida connected mida. Now, even if you do a tevin for someone, even if you don't get anything in return. Or not in order, but there is the concept of doing something. I do a favor for you, you do a favor for me. And it doesn't have to be subliminal, it can be very direct. You have it in business and other things, people do this. It's a type of exchange. And if it's above board, it doesn't have any um, insidious and any uh, malicious intentions. I mentioned it before. Person, the way you measure, the way you give, the way you receive. Now, God, we ask from Hashem, Lucha Hashem Adzdaki, should give us even more. But the concept of Kamayim Aponim Laponim, which means as a face is reflected in a face is reflected in water, so to a heart is reflected in another heart, is also an element of reciprocity. Now, this is not necessarily connected to the, the given issues. Another issue is 
whether, whether a quid pro quo is a legitimate thing, if one nation wants something from another nation, it says, you know what? It's a trade. You do this for us. This is a trade talks. And we'll do this for you. So the, the mere concept, there's nothing wrong about it. If anyone says there's something wrong, it would be, I'm not, and I'm not judging the current situation with the president and Congress and so on, and they're all their issues, but rather there's wrong would be if I'm asking you for something, I'm blackmailing you. So blackmail is not appropriate to say, you know what, if you want this from me, I want this from you, if it's a blackmail. So where's the thin line, or not thin line, where's the border, the boundary between blackmail and just a regular favor for a favor? So that's not always easy to determine. I would say you can see it in intention. You can see what a person does if they don't get what they want. They may not give you exactly what you want, but they're not going to in any way hurt you. And there's many ways to describe, even in contractual agreements, what's a favor for a favor, and it's not considered extortion or blackmail. But that's really outside the scope of this, and maybe we'll talk about it at another time. Okay, the follow-up, I was going to do the follow-up, and I really wanted to because I've been pushing it off, but you know what? Follow-up uh, can always be moved to next week, and we'll do that. See this question. So again, the custom is here to always have a, conclude with a question on Chassidus, and then with the three essays from this most recent essay contest. As we stand at the threshold of Geula, are we at a stage where the Gvuris rise above the Chassadim? So let's uh, spell it out. <laughs> here, the title of this uh, writer Virtual e and sage harava chosid atomim rabsimen. I didn't have to read it, but I just find it uh, amusing, so I share it. It's always good to have a light moment. In the mimer printed in this week's Dvar Malchus, entitled, this means last week's, Eilotel Yitzchok ben Avram, Avram Heledes Yitzchok, it's from Beis Kislev Tovshin Chafei, it's a mimer from the Rebbe, a parsha tells, I'm sorry, Shabbos parsha tells us Beis Kislev Tovshin Chafei, that'd be. Uh, probably in 1964, right? The Rebbe states, quoting, among others, the Tanya, as explained by the Tzemach Tzedek, that it is a sp specifically because of Birurim, that's the refinements in this, in Golis, that there's a need for chsadim, for kindness. And specifically through the chsadim can the Gvuras be proper. And through the chsadim, which alleviate and also sweeten and refine and harness the Gvuras, which is the more the severe Energy. So chesed is a giving energy, gvur is more of an intense energy or a severe energy. So when there's birudim, you need to have the chesedim to properly harness the gvuris. However, after the birudim, when the birudim will be finished, which means when golos will be finished, the gvuris will be entirely higher than the chesedim. Because the root of the gvuris come from a greater place than the chesedim, but today they need to be harnessed. Once they're finished and you already did the refinement, so there's no room for yunikah meaning for any negative results from intensity, from the severity of Gvura, the Gvura will be completely higher than Chesed. It's a common concept, not just in this memory, in many memory, based on the Kabbalah, the Alter Rebbe speaks about it. My question is this, since the Rebbe stated that we have finished Avedis Abedurim, as we know, at the are we now, I'm sorry, are we now at the status of La'asid, of the future, when the Gvuras are entirely higher than Chesedim? Very good question. So let me first explain this chesed and gvura thing. When we talk about chesed and gvura, the ultimate chesed and gvura is, gvura is the tzimtzum, concealment. Chesed is light, the kav. So everyone would say light is greater than dark. But why was there a tzimtzum? In order, there should be kalim, there should be makablim, there should be recipient space for another entity receive light. Like a teacher, if he just allows his light to shine without any filters, 
and regulation, it will overwhelm the, the student. Like rain, if it rains and pours without raindrops, it will flood the fields and destroy them just as much as a drought. So gvur is kshamim. You need the chesed to be dressed up in gvur. So the gvur is the concealment in order to bring revelation. However, when it's in a state where you don't really understand that, the concealment can end up being also a nightmare. The Rebbe brings in this famous sikh, Tubishvat Lamites, and Hashanah Rabbi Memdalit, crying that how much the sheer God conceals himself, like a father conceals from a child himself, in order to elicit the ingenuity of the child to find the father. But what happens if the father hid himself so well and the child stops seeking? So suddenly, Gvura becomes a liability. Its intention was to bring out better, bigger chesed, and more er, but it was misunderstood. That's why in a time when you're not still in Golis, in a time after Chet Eitz when you don't have divine revelation, Gvura needs to be channeled, it needs to be harnessed, it needs to be moderated. So the Chesed has to, so to speak, direct Gvura. Because without that, it could be misunderstood and it could turn into a very severe situation, like someone thinking no one's watching. God is concealed, has to ask the point to the deepest levels of Golis, which I don't even want to spell out how dark it can get. So you need chesed to direct gvur. Sometimes chesedis associates that with the same thing with zacher nekeva, mashpia makabel. The makabel, really, the root of the makabel, the root of the tzimtzum is higher than the root of air because air is a natural flow from the divine. To conceal for a chacham, it's harder to restrain himself from saying something than from speaking. So tzimtzum has a power that comes from restraint that's deeper than chesed, but it needs chesed to direct and guide it. The same thing with mashpia makabel. A mashpia is rooted much higher than the mashpia. The kalim are rooted higher than the air. But you need the mashpia in our day and age to direct the makabal because it doesn't know on its own. The levana, the moon, needs the sun. But with the asid lavi, when everything's going to be refined and there won't be no more unique sachitzenim, then there will be the alias ha makabal. Eshes chayel ateres baila. The cave to save of govar. And all the expressions chsidis brings, how malchus will rise. But malchus today is less lamagamot klum. But because of that, it could also be hurt and wounded. Pagama Malchus. On the other hand, once everything is cleared up and Chesed has done its job, then the mile of Gvura, the power of Gvura, the intensity will be revealed. So where do we stand now? The answer is, as we get closer to the Gula, yeah, Gvuras have become more sweetened. They're not as severe. They've been guided. And the gilui of the Maila of Gvura will become more and more revealed. Some say that's the reason that women today are much more prominent roles because it's coming closer to the age when it'll be in the cave to save of Gavur and you'll see the Maila of the Makabal. So I can't say that every Gvura we see is now in a state of, um, of uh, doesn't need chesed, but you have to say the closer we get to the Gula, that Gvuras will become more and more apparent how the quality of it is. We start seeing the clarity of things, so also the my love Gvura will be revealed. This explains a lot of things, Kairach's mistake and many other mistakes made because they thought that it's already like La'osid Love, Yitzchak wanted to bless Esau as Esau as Gvura because they thought there was already a time of Gaula where Gvura is already ready for, the, for his greatness. But you still need chesed to guide it until Mashiach actually comes. That doesn't mean there won't be chesed when Mashiach comes. It will just mean that Gvura will be able to rise to its prominence and chesed will play its role at the same time. Okay.
There's more to say on this, but let me suffice with that. Let me now do three essays. These are essays from this last 2019 contest. The first one is the problem of uh, extra time, extra empty time, and how do you solve that according to Chassidus. So the title tells it all. It's basically how to time management and filling time when we have so much free time today. To see time as elements, not as one big flow, but see it as each moment is a life is the key to this essay and how to use each moment to make the world a better place. This requires a different way of looking at comforts, the comfort we have and the free time we have, the luxury, the leisure that we have. And then comes actual, applic- actual practical ways to do this. Making a true cheshben, making a true accounting and a true accounting of your own time, what that's in your control. Establishing goals and objectives. Creating a plan, a long-term plan. Working with others, partnerships. And knowing that nothing stops you when you want to do something. It's a very beautiful essay, very inspiring about a topic we all can use, how to waste less time and use the time for the right reasons. That's essay number one. The next essay is... One second, let me just say who wrote that essay. First essay that about the time is Baruch Sik Vashvili, age 39, Kfar Chabad, Israel. Yeshiv Rosh Mochem Mechker Teroni Dasli Yisrael. He's the head of a foundation that is, uh, does Torah research called Dasli Yisrael. The next essay, Habikursius, which is critique. How do we look at it? Critique or account, uh, accountability. And what is the depth that's concealed in it? Menachem Mendel Natan, age 21, Kiryat Malachi, Israel. And his job is Sefer Shuk. Mafia Sefer Shuk. Okay. So he talks about this. It's also in Hebrew. And uh, dealing with challenges, things don't go exactly your way. And how do you look at constructive critique versus negative critique? The fact that we're social creatures and we all depend on each other and therefore are affected by each other's opinions of us. The mirror, the image of the mirror, when you see something, what does it require? What does it mean? What does it reflect back to you? And a uh, pretty serious and, I would say, elaborate essay on this topic. Again, well worth reading. The topic of, uh, that I just addressed. Okay. And finally, essay number three. In English, Exodus from Egypt, be your own task ma- master. Task K in, a, in the parentheses. Ariella Hertzfeld, age 22, Morristown, New Jersey, an educator. She's an educator. Exodus from Egypt, that's a, what is the lesson from the Exodus from Egypt for our time? In our generation. And based on the concept of Exodus that we have to in every generation go out of the limitations and constraints of Mitzrayim. She employs that using the Hayyem Yem of Dalit Shvat, of how we use that to um, control our own lives and be a task manager. Now, task is three letters. T, thoughts, application, and knowledge. Thoughts, application, speech, and knowledge. The four things that are task. And again, very nice essay. Very good applications.
And all these essays can be found at, me, at uh, chassidahsupply.com. We post them as we speak. Every, every week we review three more, and three more are posted. You can also receive them in your inbox by subscribing to our weekly or bi-weekly different emails that we offer. So with that, my friends, we conclude episode 285 of My Life Chassidah Supplied. We're here every week, 8 to 9 p.m. Sundays. And I look forward always to your questions and look forward to be able to do the best in trying to respond to them. We always welcome your feedback, your comments, your critique, positive, how we can improve this program, expanding the program, and of course, any support and help you can offer us, including financial help by going to chassidahsupply.com, donate or sponsor a program in memory, in memory or honor of a loved one. Everyone have a very freilich chedesh kislev, that from Tes Kislev, from Tes Kislev, we go to Yud Kislev, to Yud Dalet Kislev, to Yud Tes Kislev, to Chanukah, an illuminating Chedesh Kislev, an illuminating Tomid, and Tomid meaning always illuminated with the in, inner light of Chesidus and Primus Atera that will bring Mashiach immediately. Be well.